Thanks for joining us on episode two of the Collective Defense podcast titled Going After New Threats, Binaries, and Malware, where we are diving into how our threat detection team finds new threats before they hit your network. The Collective Defense Podcast, where we are defining the next generation of cybersecurity. We are all in this together. I'm excited that you are here for episode two of the Collective Defense Podcast. I am Bill Swearingen, and I am joined with my co-host, who has recently been a threat hunter at IronNet, focusing primarily on the financial and healthcare verticals, and was previously a pen tester in the federal sector. Anyone that knows him knows that this man knows his stuff and is definitely not a Kansas fan. Hey, thanks for being on, Joel Bort. Hey, thanks, Bill. I appreciate that. I know, and you said that while you were in a Kansas City hat, so I appreciate your honesty. I'm not a Kansas City fan. Uh, so I'm pumped to be here, and I get to introduce our guest podcaster here today. Uh, I had the pleasure of working with this gentleman while he was a threat hunter working with me here at IronNet, and he excelled at searching for threats in client environments. He also helped develop and tune some analytics, and he undeniably added a huge amount of value to the clients he helped serve. Since those times, though, he has since switched roles and now works on our emerging threat and detection research team that is responsible for going after new threats, binaries, and malware. Our guest, Peter Rudzinski, thanks for joining us. Of course, happy to be here. Now, most organizations are spending a ton of time trying to avoid and defend against malware, and yet your role requires you to chase after it. Am I right? Correct. Peter, I'm excited to pull more details out of you about your role and any current events that may interest you as soon as we're done with our cybersecurity news update. So here we go. This is going to be our speed rounds. We're going right into it. At the end of each speed round, you're going to hear this noise. And that'll be the end. We have a lot of news today and we're going to jump right in. You ready, Bill? I'm ready. Here we go. So first on the list, WordPress search engine optimization plugin called Rank Math had a number of vulnerabilities. First was a privilege escalation where if you had a user account, you could escalate any of those users to admin and then revoke the other admin rights. I was really interested in this article. Probably many people know most of the vulnerabilities in WordPress usually come from the themes or the plugins that are they're installed. WordPress is pretty mature at this point. And for those that don't know, there is a, a tool out there that can help scan your website to see if you have any vulnerable plugins or, or themes. It's called WPS Scan. Um, Joel, have you ever seen that tool? Yeah, I was actually, before this call, I jumped on the, the vulnerability database and these specific vulnerabilities aren't actually on that tool yet. Yeah, I, I imagine we'll probably see those in there soon. So uh, for those that have used the tool, you can just uh, do a dash dash update um, and it, it'll go out and grab the, the latest vulnerabilities. So I, I would imagine we're going to see that soon. You know, WordPress is used in a lot of places. So my, I imagine that there's going to be a lot of vulnerable sites uh, to this threat right now. All right, that's a wrap on that one. Good timing, Bill. Next up, number two, we are looking at Marriott breached again. Looks like this is the second one. I mean, everybody knows the massive data breach they had a while ago. This one is 5.25 million unencrypted passport numbers were included in this breach, along with 20 million encrypted passport numbers. This is bad. This is the second time recently that we've seen this, Bill. Are you a Bonvoy member? I am. Um, you know, at, at this point, you kind of have to assume that the data is out. Um, so as I was reading through this article, one thing really stuck out to me, you know, as somebody who was recently responsible for these types of data sets, 
Um, it looks like this attack was carried out against a third-party software that Marriott used to provide guest services to. That was always one of my biggest fears when I thought about, you know, like what kept me up at night was who has my data, uh, what kind of data do they have, and, and what protections do they have around it, right? You know, I'm sure the, the Marriott security team, they do probably do a very good job of protecting their data sets, but how are third parties accessing it? Yeah, I know. It's that supply chain keeps biting companies over and over and over again. It's super unfortunate. And this is just another example of that. So to the Starwood guests out there, it looks like they are offering another year of LifeLock or some similar service. Um, I'm sure most of you guys have that already, though. So unfortunately, keep an eye out. This specific type of data can be used to implore spear phishing tactics against those who were exposed. So be aware, don't click on any link. Even if you are a Bonvoy member, be careful. And it looks like Marriott's response, uh, they, they have reset those passwords as well. So um, good for them. Awesome. Cutting you off a little bit there, but you're right, Bill. Next one up is the FBI released its third alert in regard to the Quampiers-related Trojans targeting healthcare in recent months. Now, we just jumped in last episode with John Ford into healthcare, but what can you tell me about this type of Trojan? Yeah, this one's really interesting. Once again, um, you know, we're talking about supply chain. Um, and so just taking a look at this threat actor, uh, we, we see that this particular malware strand is, is, is really targeting the, the uh, healthcare sector that now the article does go into into some more detail in, in other verticals that are attacking but my research shows that they're primarily targeting x-ray and mri machines um miter actually has um, a pretty good profile on both this malware and and the threat actor itself uh, that you can find on attack.mitre.org slash software slash s0236 um, so, you know, and, and Joel, I'll go into a little bit more, but it looks like uh, the, this Quampiers this, uh, is using a, a remote access Trojan um, and using a lot of, um, uh, you know, highly advanced APT type style attacks, being able to, to spread that via SMB and, and other Windows shares. Yeah, it, and it looks like the FBI's warning that they have been able to sustain persistence for three to 36 months and then they're deploying additional modules to perform additional reconnaissance throughout the network. So some pretty nasty stuff that's hitting our uh, healthcare industry right now. Yeah, one thing that I pulled out of there that I think we should make mention is that the FBI is requesting that if anybody's seeing this, that, that they coordinate with their local field office. And, and I would really encourage you to do that. So one of the reasons uh, that, that they asked that is just to see uh, the scope of how, how far it's spread. So now, I can't cut you off on that one. Where can somebody find their local field office? Who should they talk to? Uh, so if you just go to, to FBI.gov, you can find your local field office and a connection point. Yep. Or talk to your chief information security officer. If they're a member of InfraGuard, they can go right there as well. Next up, Chinese SplinterNet. This one really intrigued me, uh, and I, I'm sure it's going to intrigue a lot of listeners as well. This is China saying that they can do the internet better, and it, it's got people scared. NATO warned us about it. China creating a new authoritarian internet. Uh, they're starting to lay the framework already, Bill. What do you think? Yeah, th this one I could do a whole episode on. This one uh, is really interesting. So first of all, China has proposed to the UN's uh, International Telecommunication Union, uh, probably more well known as the ITU, last September. Um, they're looking for a plans to replace uh, the current TCP IP model, and they're dubbing it the new IP. Uh, the interesting thing, I mean, there, there's uh, all kinds of interesting bits in the story, but it's being led by Huawei, as well as China's uh, other state-run telcos and, and the government itself. 
For those of you who don't remember, Huawei recently got into some huge legal battles here in the United States, and Google said that they actually can't use the Android operating system on Huawei devices. They won that lawsuit, and Huawei was basically kicked out of the Android community. China also, they filter all of the traffic coming in and out of China. So they basically allow their organizations to run their applications. So Google doesn't operate there. Amazon's not operating there. Uh, they already have control over their section of the internet, and they're trying to further that, I believe. Yeah, this Splinternet, um, if implemented, it would it would centralize control over that network into the hands of the telecoms, um, which essentially in China would be the Chinese government, right? Pretty interesting story. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I expect more to come on that one, so we'll keep our listeners updated. All right, next one. We have a couple more, and then we're going to jump back to you, Peter. The next one is the Sphinx Banking Trojan. This is a modification of Zeus, and it looks like it's back in force. We saw this article from the infosecurity-magazine.com. What do we have on this? Yeah, you know, when, when I read this one, I was like, oh, Sphinx, oh, Zeus, please <laughs> just go away, right? Um, we're, we've, we've seen you uh, for so long. The, the article basically says, you know, that uh, we really started seeing the Sphinx uh, in August 2015, and, and really it was because Zeus posted its source code. It looks like right now they're, they're really still using the, the same type of techniques, delivering uh, phishing emails that have Word documents attached to it. Yeah, I mean, it, it really hasn't changed that much, but unfortunately these same malware, they, it just keeps working, right? People keep falling for it. So, And sometimes once it lays idle for a while, the, these old tricks still do work from time to time. I think this one is one we may be able to cut short. We have a couple more we got to jump into, if that's okay with you, Bill. Yeah, just quit running macros out of attached Word documents, everybody. <laughs> yeah, please disable those macros, okay? All right, this one's interesting. Voter data left publicly available by an application called Campaign Sidekicks. They did so by leaving their source code publicly available through GitHub. Oh, this, this is like leaving your S3 bucket available to the internet. Yeah, once again, we got we got a third party uh, that has access to data, right? And once again, this truly is uh, one of the things that was keeping me up at night is, is these third parties. Uh, there And there are a lot of very mature tools that can go through and scan for sensitive data in GitHub repositories. Uh, I'm not surprised to hear this. Yeah, I mean, they're not using best practices, right? Even within their own organization, and then they leave it publicly available where they have this sensitive data hard-coded. Ah, it's a shame. It truly is. Once again, this organization looks like they've been helping since the 2002 election cycle. And UpGuard was the one who found this Git directory on the app.campaignsidekick.vote. So if you've heard of them, it uh, looks like it was targeting specifically Republican voters. So be careful. Once again, you guys can may have had your information leaked. All right, here we go. Last but definitely not least... Zoom bombs. I uh, have a really good article going into some serious depth on this KrebsOnSecurity.com. But Bill, you have some significant uh, qualms with Zoom. Talk to me about them. Yeah, actually, uh, not not qualms with Zoom themselves. Um, you know, I feel like the Zoom team that are doing the best that they can. Imagine, you know, they were built for a certain level of people usage, and then all of a sudden, the whole world is using them. It brings a lot of security researchers looking at it. What we're seeing is a lot of Zoom problems, though. There's been uh, several articles that mention different kinds of vulnerabilities, and we're starting to see 
kind of roaming gangs uh, attacking Zoom meeting, open Zoom meetings and joining and doing some some terrible things, very, you know, posting pornography and, and saying very nasty things as a result of that. Yeah, I gave an example yesterday. What if your high-end client was on that call, right? And you've been trying ever since this COVID-19 thing dropped to get them on a conference and then you get bombed. Uh, it would just be a disaster. So looks like there is a tool out there called Z Wardial, and it is basically scanning for unsecured Zoom meetings. So that that tool's not released. Um, you know, I, I am aware of the of the team that that built that tool, um, and and I know that they're not going to release it. But the threat still remains, right? So people uh, are have open Zoom meetings, and and whether they post about it publicly in, in social media or or not, they they need to be aware that they need to protect their meetings. There, there's some very good guidance out there on, on what needs to be done, but really, uh, plain and simply, you need to be protecting your meetings with a password. That's, that's really going to prevent um, most of these types of attacks. And then if you do that, don't post the password on, on social media, Twitter, et cetera. Please, please, please set those passwords. It's easy not to do. It's easy to do as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bill, for your insights. That is our cybersecurity news for today. Now let's pivot back to you, Peter. And thanks again for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Peter, I promised listeners I would dig more into what you do on a daily basis. So I think the best statement to really start with is probably this. Most people and organizations are trying to avoid malware like the plague, right? And we're seeing enterprises spend millions of dollars of cash trying to defend their enterprises against it. Yet your whole job is around finding new strains of malware, right? Yeah, it is indeed. And uh, as you said, that's probably a little bizarre for some people. Um, but uh, I'm sure a lot of folks in the security community and the research community um, are also trying to get their hands on malware because uh, if anybody spent a little bit of time around uh, Bill Swearingen, they know uh, his mantra is malware is the greatest gift that an attacker can give us. Um, I can't say I've heard it put more eloquently than that. Um, and it, it may be difficult to understand that as somebody who may be, uh, you know, a CISO or something like that, who's thinking, hey, let's get this off of our systems. But in reality, the, the truth is that is the best piece of intel that you can gather. So, you know, as IronNet, it's obviously a big objective of ours to, to gather as much as we can and, and get as much info out of those as we can. Now, talk to me a little bit more, maybe for a listener who may not be quite as technical as a reverse engineer, what kind of data are you getting out of new binaries you're seeing traverse the internet? Sure. So there's all sorts of different uh, information that binaries can provide. Um, for our purposes, um, given the fact that we're focused on network traffic analysis, we are highly interested in the PCAP that is generated after malware is actually detonated. Um, that being said, that's not the entirety, entirety of our focus. We are definitely also focused on uh, uh, not the dynamic analysis, but rather the static analysis of binaries as well, um, because oftentimes dynamic analysis and, and producing PCAP samples of command and control traffic and exfiltration isn't necessarily possible, um, but uh, static analysis allows us to extract those network behaviors or at least some understanding of those network behaviors to a certain extent. When you say PCAP, you're, you're talking about packet capture, right? You're looking to, to see how those, those malware samples talk on the internet, or what, what are you looking for? That's correct. Yeah, with PCAP, we're looking for a, a single data set that we can go to and say, hey, this is this type of malicious activity. Um, malicious binaries obviously may not exhibit all of them, so labeling them can be, can be tricky, but uh, capturing that in raw traffic is, is definitely the best thing we can do. So how are you guys catching those? What are you guys doing as a team to get your hands on those? There are a lot of different techniques we employ. Um, 
Our team is sort of focused on two different efforts though uh, within that space. I would say the uh, active collectors is one and the passive collectors is another. So um, what we mean by that is the active collectors are actively going out and grabbing malware from sources that are known. So this is your blacklists. This is your uh, shady new domains that are just created yesterday. This is all the different uh, means of finding malware actively, but that maybe that particular malicious actor wasn't targeting us. We're going out and grabbing that binary from them. Then the other half of that is the passive side. So that's where we're sitting and waiting. We're standing up services, waiting for people to attack them, collecting information on that attack, grabbing any binaries that were uploaded and moving on from there. Cool. So not only are you scraping for threats, but you're also waiting for the threats to come to you. What are you using to do that? What have you guys put together? I know some pretty fun stuff on your side of the office. Definitely. This really gets me excited. This is actually what I'm mainly focused on myself. The open source resources that are available for honeypot technologies is significant. Um, and we have employed two specific technologies, Calry and Dianea. Calry to service our SSH and active, uh, semi-active attacker, as well as we have a, the Dianea instances, which allow us to capture a variety of different services. So uh, Dianea is an all-service honeypot. It captures all sorts of different Linux and Windows services all in one. Yeah, so when you talk about Calry, um, you know, I'm familiar with, with that honeypot, um, and I think that we saw a lot of botnets using SSH brute force. Is that, is that what you're seeing with those? Or oh, my goodness. We one? see so much SSH brute force, and, and you know, it's, it may be surprising when you see that volume, but it's just hard to understand how, much, how many scripts are out there, how many different uh, you know, brute force scripts are out there that are just constantly hammering the internet for all sorts of different passwords, uh, whether that be even, you know, dictionary attacks or what have you, it's just all over the place. You mentioned there were two types. You had low interaction honeypots and high interaction honeypots. So I just wanted to clarify for the listeners on the line, low interaction honeypots are very passive devices that are just listening for anything open on a lot of ports. Now talk to me about these high interaction honeypots and what you guys are building in what's called a honey net. I, I talked to a security researcher in the past, and they said these honey nets, a network of honeypots, it's no trivial task to build these out. Yeah, that's absolutely correct, Joel. Um, for these low interaction honeypots, these all-service ones, you know, your DNA and your calorie, um, they're really just emulated services. So uh, for Dianea, for example, there's a lot of C, but there's a lot of Python too. Um, so these services are just super simple, bare uh, they only perform the actions that the service needs to perform to maybe establish a connection and receive some data, but they don't necessarily handle the subsequent portions of the connection completely accurately. Um, and that's just simply because we're looking for large amounts of data, trends, uh, different sources of, of uh, a large holistic analysis versus um, the high interaction stuff, which you were mentioning is a little bit more difficult to implement. Um, this gives us uh, the more sophisticated attackers and allows us to study attacker actions on objectives. And I would say that the level of difficulty makes it very unappealing for many people to employ because the value add is so difficult to get out. But I do think that uh, the high interaction honeypots are, are where we're going to really find the interesting things. Those low interaction honeypots just only provide that, that holistic analysis and in the, in the high interaction stuff is where you're going to find the more sophisticated actions. So when we start talking about the high interaction honeypots, um, what kind of level of automation uh, are you guys employing between the, the binary collectors and detonation? And, and how are you even protecting the environment of, 
where you are detonating that malware? Sure. So um, I'm glad you asked that because the high interaction honey net that we're currently building out is actually used for more than just a honey net. We haven't currently exposed it to the internet yet. Um, so going to your, your question specifically, we are undergoing a red team evaluation uh, as we speak to ensure that there has been sufficient levels of protections between the portions of the network we want exposed and the portions of the network that we don't want exposed. So obviously there's an administration portion of this network that has to be uh, safe and secure for analysts to connect into and to schedule detonations and to uh, collect data from detonations and things like that, um, that we do not want attackers to come into, but we do want there to be a portion of the network that's very easy to access so we can get some attackers in and start studying their behaviors. Ensuring that the you know levels of separation there is key, but um, the detonation portion is also very interesting because we have all sorts of different binaries, including things like worms. So it may not just be securing the administration portion of the network. It's also securing the other hosts on the network on the honey net that we don't want to have to rebuild if something like a worm were to get out and, and destroy the, the network. So there's all sorts of different concerns there, Bill. Bill mentioned automation. What kind of interactions are you guys required to do with your honey nets in order to, let's say an advanced threat actor gets on there or an advanced piece of malware jumps onto your high interaction honey pots? How do you see that? How do you visualize that data? How do you get hands-on with that detonation when it occurs? Sure. So we've, uh, we've deployed alongside the actual detonation environment itself. We've deployed an analysis environment that looks very similar, actually, to the detonation environment, but it has a, a Selks VM, a very beefy Selks VM, that we can pump all of the network traffic that we're seeing on the detonation portion back over to this uh, Selks VM. So for those of you that aren't aware, Selks is uh, essentially a, a Suricata, Elasticsearch, Logstash, Kibana, and Scurious, which uh, allows you to manage um, Suricata rules and signatures and makes it very easy to collect uh, network level data and present it in an Elasticsearch and Kibana dashboard. Um, so for us, that, that simplified that process because now we have a one-stop shop we can go to. It allows us to parse PCAP out, which again meets that objective that we were talking about earlier as well as we can uh, dig around in some dashboards to get some ideas of what is actually happening on the network without having to dig through PCAP itself. Yeah, thanks, Peter. That, that helps quite a bit. Um, so I'm, I'm just kind of just generally curious, you know, when the, when the team is building this out, what do you expect the output to be? What, what do you expect to find? And, and how are you going to be leveraging that, that information for your team? Sure. So as we were mentioning, there's the, the first objective, which is detonation of binaries. That's just discrete. We're, we're taking a single binary, detonating it in isolation and seeing what that PCAP looks like. And then there's the second objective, which is expose this honey net to the internet and let an attacker come in, see what that activity looks like. In both cases, we're interested in, in mainly their network behaviors. Um, but I would say that uh, in certain cases where we have highly sophisticated actors or highly sophisticated malware, we are also interested in collecting anything that uh, is memory resident. So we've employed some techniques to grab things out of memory from our VMs so that we can ca catch uh, binaries that are maybe downloaded and deleted in between detonations. We can also catch uh, any uh, actions that are, are, are taking, only, taking place only in memory. Um, so we can parse those things out as well. Uh, have you seen anything interesting? Like, has there been any surprises with uh, either types of these honeypots that you've seen or that you'd have deployed? Hmm. I would say probably <laughs> no big surprises currently, except the number of times we find malware that uh, just does not execute. And what, for whatever reason that may be, we are unsure, but it just does not execute. And we've done a lot of work to make sure that the, there are no VM checks that are 
coming back or making sure that malware isn't detecting that it's in an analysis VM and things like that. Um, and yet it appears that there are just compatibility issues and all sorts of different problems. I mean, we have Windows hosts that have no patches, half patched, full patched, all sorts of different versions. And, and yet we just can't get certain binaries to execute. And so, uh, and, and they're, not, they're not sophisticated. So we don't believe that they're employing any sort of evasion techniques. It's just uh, funny to see how many times it, it appears that malware is uh, deployed and spread without it being fully functional or even really functional across a variety of different systems for, you know, for it to be successful. Yeah. Um, so just an interesting side note there. Um, in one of my previous experiences, we were running some honeypots or uh, detonation environments, and we had a, a piece of malware that was uh, detonation aware uh, that, that employed just something so clever and so funny that, you know, our team thought it was pretty funny as they, they did a zip bomb where, as the malware was was executing, it did a, a detection to see, uh, am I running in a, in a virtual environment? And if yes, it, it exploded itself to be, I think it was a, around a terabyte in size of, of zeros, right? So that it would it would knock over my my detonation environment. I always thought always thought that was pretty pretty clever and funny. Yep. The question, uh, the last question was, what is it your team is doing with the data, right? So so how are you going to be leveraging the right. output there, um, and, and what does that what does that really look like? Of course, yeah. So, I mean, that's really the, the, the best part here is, is once we're done with all of these detonations and once we're done analyzing actions on objective from an attacker, um, the interesting thing is we get to feed this data back to uh, our, our research teams as well as our operational teams. So, you know, as Joel used to work in the SIOC, we receive a lot of requests from our hunt team who, you know, maybe they'll stumble across something in a customer environment. They'll pass it over to us. We'll be able to detonate that sample and give them some follow-on network behaviors to search for, as well as produce any, uh, again, samples, whether that be PCAP or Suricata alerts that we can produce that then can be fed back into the system. But from a research perspective, the main objective here is to provide a large data set of PCAP and malicious activities that we can then use to train classifiers and models for our analytics that then uh, we deliver to customers. One of the most direct ways that we've done this uh, is through our phishing analytics. We see a mountain of phishing data and we have a lot of good sources that we can pull from that provide us new domains and all sorts of different uh, good nuggets that we can use to train these models. So these have been a very effective use of our uh, data collections um, is around training models to detect phishing domains as they're stood up. So the way you can bring just the advanced research and, and the value you guys are getting from that research and then turn it around and deliver that back to clients. I mean, that's something most organizations couldn't even imagine doing that through their own staff, right? So the fact that you can provide that to clients, that's a massive value add. No, I agree, Joel. It's actually one of the things that I think uh, makes it worth it to be on our team, because if you're producing data for research, it can often be slow. It, you can, it, it can be a, a while till you see that you know, value turned from that. So it's really nice when we can provide direct support to the SIOC and, and make sure that our customers are, are feeling a little better about the services we're providing. And I'm going to say that's kind of our shameless plug to IronNet. We are doing some really cool stuff. And I know your team in particular, the Emerging Threat and Detection team, you guys are spearheading a lot of that, including this effort. So I did want to pivot a little bit and have you talk about individuals maybe listening to this. Can they stand up their own honeypots and where should they do that and what should they use? Interesting question. Um, absolutely. Anyone can stand up their own honeypot. And I would actually, <laughs> here's an interesting example. One of the honeypot ideas that we had is uh, we had a ton of different options to go with. And all of these options were promising all sorts of different features and functionalities. But 
funny enough, the one thing that most of these sophisticated options, including Cowrie and Dianea and all these different things, did not offer a solution for simple port access. How many times does this port get hit? I don't care whether a full connection was made. I don't care whether what protocol was used. Just tell me how many ports, you know, and how many, how many times I saw connections to these ports. And that's a very simple honeypot that you can stand up yourself. And if you can imagine, all you have to do is set up a netcat listener that listens on every single port or all the ports you're interested in, have some logging script in the background. It's very simple and it's a great project to get people started. So if I had one recommendation, I would say try to develop your own and then start taking a peek at these other technologies that are out there and what they have to offer. Yeah, thanks, Peter. And, and I know as, as you've been talking, you've mentioned a couple different projects. Do you mind touching on those again? And, and are those are those open source projects? Are they, um, you know, are they commercial? Where, where do they kind of land in there? Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of commercial products out there and we have taken a peek at those. And there's a lot of different, there's a lot of variation between what's out there in the open source world and what's out there in the uh, commercial world. I would say the main focus for the open source world is or I shouldn't say main focus, I should say the, the main thing for the open source world is it's definitely manual. It's highly manual. You definitely have to have a, a good bit of time and a, and a good understanding of Unix typically to deploy a lot of these honeypots, but their power is typically on par with a lot of the commercial uh, solutions out there. So Dianea and Cowrie um, are obviously what we were using, but I would recommend others take a peek at the modern HoneyNet because both of those, I believe, are actually included within that uh, suite. And uh, additionally, they have a ton of other uh, really great resources that you can deploy if you're interested. But I do think that uh, one thing I wanted to mention is we saw in the commercial space a heavy focus on operations. So most honeypots out there you're going to find are typically focused on, oh, I've received communication on a port I wasn't supposed to receive communication on. Let me go ahead and alert in a some scene. And a SIOC analyst will come and take a look at that. But the problem is that you don't get too much information about like what happened after that. Was this a user who accidentally typed the wrong IP and tried to connect to a server that they weren't supposed to be? Or was this an actual attack that delivered something? Um, and so uh, for research purposes, a lot of those commercial solutions were not going to work for us. So yeah, definitely do your homework and make sure you're taking a look at what those uh, products can offer. But I think that's a great place to start, don't you? I mean, it, exactly what you said. If individuals listening to this could spin up their own, build their own just rudimentary honeypot using Netcat and look at the ports being hit, hopefully that'll spark some interest in them to want to know what would have occurred if they had something a little more high interactive and then go digging into those other open source or maybe commercial products. It's true, Joel. I think uh, honeypots are probably one of the most exciting things you can do in security that quickly. You know, a lot of things take a long time, and a lot of studying, and a lot of work to get up to, um, or they're highly sensitive work that you have to do to, before you do something cool. But honeypots are, are awesome because you can, anyone can stand one up and anyone can see attacks come in live. Um, and, so it, oh it is man. definitely really fun. Yeah, that, that first time when you see an attacker hit your honeypot, the adrenaline that you get and watching them and, and, got it. and, and that, that first time you see someone actually typing on a keyboard and you know that you caught somebody, it, it's, a, it's a great feeling. Absolutely. And if you're really interested in seeing typing on a keyboard, I'll definitely recommend Cowrie because there's a lot of features in there that capture the actions on objective, including a, a log of the TTY session that was created as they, they joined on. So you can actually replay that session and see exactly how those key presses were, were pressed. So it is, it's, it's invigorating. That's exciting stuff. Now, Peter, I know you're on LinkedIn. Once again, to the listeners here, Peter Radzinski, R-Y-D-Z-Y-N-S-K-I, Peter Radzinski. Find him on LinkedIn, guys. 
poke him, say thank you for this, uh, and ask him more questions, please. Now, thank you so much once again, Peter, for being on. We do have to pivot. We're running low on time, but we have to ask you a couple questions we ask each and every one of our guests. You ready? Ready. I'll take the first one, Bill. What is something you're really proud of that you've implemented? And I have a feeling I know what that is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, I got to be boring here. What did we just talk about? Exactly. Um, You know, I'd say the reason I'm most proud of that um, is probably because uh, not what it delivers, but rather because of what it is. It is a collection of open source free tools that we put together, most of which I had never touched before. Um, And I found working with technologies that I had never touched before, maybe that I had heard of, but I had never touched, um, was one of the best learning experiences I've had. And uh, being able to then turn that around and actually make that something that we can deliver value with is is another just really great uh, feeling afterwards. So what is the worst advice that you've ever heard? Oh, that is a tough question. Now, this happened quite recently, so I don't think it was, uh, it's not probably the worst piece of advice that I've had, but it's definitely the, uh, one of the worst pieces of advice that I've received uh, in the recent past. I, as Joel mentioned, was recently moved over from the hunt team to this research team. And on the hunt team, you're focused on operations and you're, you're heavily ingrained with uh, client relationships and you're constantly working with analytics teams and you're all over the company and you're sort of front and center. So, you know, it's a, it's a really great position to take advantage of upward mobility. And uh, a lot of senior leaders, as I was making this transition, told me, man, this is the worst career decision you can make. And it's not that that is terrible advice, because I do think that for career mobility, maybe I could have made a better decision, but I think for happiness and for what I wanted to do and for uh, sort of job satisfaction in general, man, it is hard to be developing and being able to say, hey, I, I spent a long time working and here's product and I can deliver this thing. Whereas with analyst work and, um, you know, not that it isn't rewarding and gratifying. It's just that there's a, it is very nice to develop something of your own and say, hey, this is my thing. I built this. And so I really wanted to be able to do that. And, and I think this was a good decision. So I think getting that technical expertise under your belt and then coming out of that a more well-rounded developer and you have the analyst past, I don't, I don't think there's anything that can stop you. Last but not least, Peter, as a security expert, what do you think we could do better collectively? So think with this one, I know it's a little bit of a cop-out because the question is collectively, but I think that information sharing, and it's not just across companies and, and you know, collective defense as we're trying to, to push. I think it's, it comes down to people too. Uh, it comes down to like, for example, we at IronNet sponsor a lot of interns. And I think it's a great program that we put out to support college students and get them into the workspace. But oftentimes interns can get forgotten. Interns can get put off in the corner. Hey, go do this project and things like that. But we got to bring them up. We've got to bring people up. And and I think this podcast is a good example of that. We're just trying to share information that's out there, get people excited about security and, and maybe like bring everybody else up instead of just, you know, focusing on ourselves. That's great, Peter. Thank you very much. Um, And with that, um, we're going to call this an end of uh, Collective Defense Podcast number two. I want to thank you, Joel. Thank you, Peter. Excellent job, you guys. And thanks for another great podcast.